You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 1 of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst getting the oil changed, awkward first dates, and the shifting state of our world. This is the final of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we are concluding with chapter 17, Beyond Mere Theology, Two Practices. In this episode, Richard leads us in two practices that exemplify the universal Christ in daily life. At a point in this episode, Richard will refer to a third person in the room, and that is our sound engineer, Paul Thompson. We couldn't have done this without him. One more thing before we get started. We want to hear from you in two different ways. The first invite is for your participation in a podcast listener survey. We want to know what you think is working so far or what we could do better. And the second invitation is for those of you that have a burning question related to the themes of the universal Christ. Please send them our way. After the season is over, we'll gather as many listener questions as we can and bring them into conversation with Richard and then share his responses with all of you. To participate in the survey or to submit a question, head over to cac.org podcast and follow the instructions. We want to thank you for all your time listening to this series. It is you, the listeners, that help spread this message around the world. Thank you. Okay, Richard, we're so grateful that uh, you included a chapter on two practices uh, that help kind of ground this work in um, contemplative embodiment in a lot of ways. And we thought it would be helpful for all those listening that you just to show these practices rather than, than just talk about them. Talk about. So just want to um, have you uh, welcome and introduce uh, the first practice you include in the book, which comes from the same author of The Cloud of Unknowing That's right. in their lesser known book. Lesser known. Can, can you give a outline of that and then enter us into it as, as you see fit? As best I can. Yeah. Okay. Well, you gave the proper introduction. I really took to this only a few years ago. I don't know if I had even read the book of Privy Counseling, what a unique title, when I was young. But um, you've heard me speak of the hour of the wolf. And when I say this to crowds, I'm not kidding, older people in general, but uh, even younger, When I describe the hour of the wolf as those unique hours between three and six in the morning for most people, where you're beginning to come out of your deep sleep and you're in this twilight zone, that is when, for some reason, the unconscious has been unhinged and you will have your most scary dreams, attacking dreams, fearful thoughts about what you got to do the next day, and they're completely exaggerated. They're, they're way out of context, you know, but you wake up in a fright about what could go wrong or whatever it might be. And just to tell this to people is a great relief 
because then they know they're not so unusual. Mm. I guess a lot of people have this. So in that context, when I was suffering from this, for whatever reason, where I was waking up in the morning and just having anxious thoughts that were largely irrational, but where my mind would construct a gestalt of what was gonna happen or what could happen or whatever, uh, I needed something that was more than an idea. And I found it in this little exercise offered in the book of Privy Counseling. So I'm gonna largely quote the author, whoever it is, take God at face value as God is. Accept God's good graciousness as you would a plain, simple, soft compress when sick. Now I admit as a little boy, I can remember my mother putting compresses on me, either cold or hot, depending on what I have. And there was always a, a memory of a comfort in that. It was a physical memory of being covered, being uh, something, being protective. Uh, the author goes on, take hold of God in the same way as you would take hold of the compress. Press God against your unhealthy self, just as you are. Mm. Second, know that your mind and will, how your mind and will will play their games. Stop analyzing yourself or stop analyzing God. You can do without wasting so much of your energy, deciding if something is good or bad, grace given or temperament driven divine or human. If this was written in the 14th century, that's real psychological subtlety. Yeah. Third, be encouraged. Offer up your simple naked being in your fears, in your doubts, in your negativity, whatever it might be, your simple naked being to the joyful being of God for you two are one in grace, although separate by nature. And finally, don't focus on what you are, but simply that you are. That was the line that most helped me. Because when I go to the what, I'll start writing commentary on why I'm inadequate, why I'm not good enough, or I'm a phony, or whatever else it might be. But simply the naked that you are, that I exist at all. How hopelessly stupid would a person have to be if he or she could not realize that he or she simply is. Now hold the soft, warm compress of these loving words against your bodily self. I'm writing this, I think. Bypass the mind bypass even the affections of the heart or the whimsical nature of the emotions and forget, forego any analysis of what you are and what you're not and just take comfort in the fact that you are at all. Mm -hmm. Works for me. Mm -hmm. Simply that you are. 
And I end by saying, I like this practice because it can become a very embodied experience of what we've been talking about in the whole book. Your own body in its naked being with no doing involved. We're human beings. We're not before we're human doings. Becomes the place of revelation and the place of inner rest. Christ then can become de-spiritualized. It's not an idea. It's a body knowing. It's a body safety. It's a body validation. But you've got to stop that judging mind, which even critiques the practice. It says, this is stupid, Mm. which I do. (laughs) I teach these things. Then when I do them, I say, this is stupid. Mm. And that's just my ego trying to retake control Mm. because it doesn't like moving beyond rational control. So when you find the spirit of dismissal, saying this is stupid or whatever your mind might say, you can be pretty sure that's what the medievals would have called the evil one. We don't have to attribute it to the evil one, but you get what they were trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You talk about in, in this chapter that practice is more about unlearning than learning, um, unknow- more about unknowing than knowing, you unknowing. know, and it, it, it helps us um, rewire, I know you use that word a lot, rewire a different way of knowing and I think about that, uh, how, how little we trust our embodied sense of anything or our, our bodily way of knowing, our incarnational sense of it. That line of like the compress, press it against mm. yourself as you are, as your body mm. is. Um, I can feel the way my rational mind wants to, yeah. you know, uh-huh. like spin out. And then, but there is, it, it brings me into my body uh, into sensation, which yes. it's, a, it's, I can feel how I'm, where I'm moving from, right? I'm moving from my head into my heart, into my bodily sensory self. Um, and you know, if what Myers-Briggs says is true, as I remember that approximately 80% of humanity is sensate, <laughs> only 20% is intuitive. I'm an intuitive. But I'm often amazed why people read my books because they're so intuitive. It's all intuition, intuition. And uh, if 80% of humanity is is sensate, then the notion of a compress will really work for them Mm. much better than a chapter of one of my books. Mm. (laughs) And well, this is a good argument for practice in itself. You give a lot of people a concrete body-based practice where the rewiring is happening even though they don't know it. And you're probably doing much of humanity a a huge favor. Now, in favor to my own Catholic tradition, which I criticize so much, this is what I do think the sacraments achieved, particularly Eucharist. Eucharist done correctly is a body-based experience. And now we made it wordy, we made it decorative and all the rest, but you, you whittle it down to the core experience and it's about eating and chewing and swallowing and tasting. Taste and see how good is the Lord. That was trying to do the same thing, but we pulled it back 
into words. Mm-hmm. I, I said that to the priests I was talking to last week. I said, don't you all admit the Mass is so wordy. Just on and on, words. Because we intuitives like it that way. Mm-hmm. Just have naked, quiet, handing over food to your body and you slowly digesting it. There's the whole message, really, of communion. Yeah, thank you. And since you just named the Eucharist, uh, in your book you talk about there's been all these embodied practices within the tradition, but and in ways they've with the addition of so many words to explain them that they've kind of lost that embodiment um, or that felt sense of the of that as in a contemplative experience. I'm wondering if you could just name some of those, because I think it's helpful. Some of those that are what? The sacraments, so like things like, oh. or, or, or things that are sacramental, like pilgrimage. Um, yeah, what, sacramental. Sacramental. Is better. So, yeah. the, the seven sacraments in the Catholic tradition became co-opted by the priesthood, right. where the center figure is the priest, not the experience, it seems to me. So I'm glad you said, by sacramentals, we meant all the other 7,000 access points. Uh, and I think that's really what we're opening up in our teaching of contemplation, that I don't need to go to the church to have a priest absolve me of my sin, maybe sitting in a forest gazing at a dead tree for 15 minutes can allow me to forgive broken reality. That's sacramental, knowing of the same thing. And maybe much deeper than the, forgive me, hocus pocus, <laughs> that we became associated with. But it, we deserve that. You know where that phrase came from, huh? Hocus pocus. No. Oh. <laughs> when Mass was in Latin, the words, the sacred words of consecration were hoc est enum, Corpus meum, this is my body, in Latin. And Protestants making fun of us good Catholics. (laughs) They would come in and they'd hear this Latin, they'd say all that Catholic hocus pocus. Oh my gosh. Hocus corpus meum, you see. There, you learned something. (laughs) Not that you need to know it. I'm sure it, it sounded exactly that way. Hocus pocus. Yeah. But that line, even you know, this is my body. Mm. Um, this is so my. Good. This yeah. is my body, and the way this book helps to expand where that body is, and as you just said, in a forest, even. Yes. As I, as I, you know, I think about when I was nursing my sons, um, the quiet presence. Mm. Um, that that this. What this embodied way of being, mm. this contemplative way of seeing, is accessible to us through so many different yes. routes. But um, I appreciate that you're leading us into this uh, this way of seeing. In the book, you talk about um, the second practice that you offer. I wonder if you'd be willing to read it oh. for us. Uh, the divine mirror, right? The way the mirroring. Well, that whole thing. Oh you yeah. Want me to? Oh yeah. Is that all right? right? Well, of course it is. Okay, good. Um, Because it's thank you. It's such a again. It's a re. It's a reframe for us to recognize how 
how we are changed, how we tra- how oh. we're transformed. I was just wondering, is anybody getting this? So the fact that you want me to read it makes me think at least one person got it. <laughs> Thank you. This is on page 226, The Divine Mirror. A mirror receives and reflects back what it sees. It does not judge, adjust, or write commentary. We are the ones who do that. A mirror simply reveals and invites responsibility. A mirror, the sun, and God are all the same, in a certain sense, of course. They are all there, fully shining forth. Their very nature is light, love, and infinite giving. You can't offend them and make them stop shining. You can't offend a mirror or the sun or God. You can only choose to stop receiving and stop enjoying. As soon as you look, you will see they are there and fully radiating and always have been. And their message is constant, good, and life-giving. There are only lookers and the non-lookers, those who look back at the mirror, look back at God, look back at the light of the sun, those who receive and those who do not receive. When we learn to love anything or anyone, it is because they have somehow if just for a moment, mirrored us truthfully, yet compassionately to ourselves. That's when your heart goes out. When someone has just, oh my God, you know who I am and you've accepted it. You just melt. We grab onto it. Why wouldn't we? In this resonance, we literally come to life. But have no doubt, It is an allowing from our side. Such pure, unfiltered presence is accessed only by presence in return. Nothing more is needed. Presence comes to us from Christ's side, and then presence from our side knows what it needs to know. If that mirror is withdrawn for any reason, It causes sadness, emptiness, or even anger. This is what we call the grief experience. The the mirror is gone. I don't know who I am. And it often lasts for a whole year. We are normally disoriented, even heartbroken for a while. We die in some way. But why? Because we only know ourselves in another's eyes. Mm. That's fully Trinitarian. We create one another and we can uncreate one another by rejecting that imaging. We receive our identity, all of it, good and bad, from another. We're much more relational than we ever wanted to admit. The other both creates us and saves us. No man is an island entire of itself, says the poet John Donne. Now this is what we call the pure gift of holiness, or if you prefer wholeness, it's gift. It's not a moral achievement. 
We are always a giving, a resonance, never a possession of our own. The universe is relational at every level and even between levels. Relationship is the core and foundational shape of reality. Mirroring our Trinitarian God, every object serves as a mirror. Every object, or it can, if we'll allow it. Another kind of presence. You can find such mirrors in all of nature, in animals, in your parents, your lovers, your children, books, pictures, movies, and even in what some call God. Remember, God is just a word for reality with a face. And occasionally, interface, which some call prayer or love. God is a mirror big enough to receive everything and every single part of you just as it is, rejecting nothing, adjusting nothing, often for the sake of an even deeper love. We will experience a kind of universal forgiveness, a divine sympathy for all of reality, or what some have called the divine pity. And it will even fall on us Whatever is fully received in this mirror is by that very fact redeemed. And all is received, whether we believe it or not. You do not have to see the sun to know that it's still shining. If your divine mirror cannot fully receive you in this way, then it is certainly not God. Why didn't someone tell me that when I was young? Remember that regret profits no, nobody. Shame is useless. Blame is surely a waste of time. All hatred is a diversionary tactic, a dead end. God always sees and loves God in you. That's what the mystics say in so much and so many different formulations. It seems like God has no choice. This is God's eternal and unilateral contract with the soul. If you cannot allow yourself to be fully mirrored in this way, you will never fully know who you are, much less enjoy who you are, nor will you know the heart of God. Any loving gaze that we can dare to receive can start this flow. Creation itself, animals, humans, are all the divine gaze, if we allow them to be. The, and then I quote Paul, The knowledge that I once had was imperfect, but then I shall know as fully as I am known. So you could call heaven the full mirror, full receptivity. One day, the mirror will reflect in both directions. You will see over there what you allowed to see God in here, what you allowed God to see in here. This is full access, seeing and being seen. Most have named it heaven, and it begins now. Let this divine mirror fully receive you, 
all of you, and you'll never need be lonely again. This probably, you know, I, every time I read it, I, I say I should have said that differently. I w no matter how many times I tried to refine this, I was never satisfied with it. Mm. So I think the, the reader has to almost stop after, stop after a few s sentences and put in their own words. Because mm. these are still too much my words. They have to put in experiences that match their experiences. Mm. But I at least want them to know that this experience is possible. Yeah. Yeah. As I was listening to you read that, um, the words resonance, allowing, mm -hmm. presence, flow, well. uh, relationship, relationality, relational, giving and receiving, um, mm. that kind of mutual affirming. These are the gifts of that uh, practice for me that I think I can, I can feel how you're, you're giving us a blueprint of these are, you know, in a way, the fruits of this, of this uh, contemplative heart. This is what it feels like, what it looks like. Here's how you can trust it mm -hmm. in your own life mm -hmm. and then begin to orient yourself to it. And I know we've talked about um, the role of practices in mm -hmm. sort of aligning ourselves to this blueprint. <clears throat> yes. Um, but it's interesting because I think so many of us, when we start a practice, <laughs> you know, we come at it so rationally and from mm -hmm. our heads, you know, like, oh, I got to do this 20 minute sit, you know, I got to get this right. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and I appreciate that, uh, you know, that, that, that some of that is okay. It's okay, it's okay to come That's at where it you start. just to start. Um, but I wonder if you could just describe what that early stage of practice looks like and mm -hmm. maybe validate it for those of mm -hmm. us who are wanting to try this out, wanting to try out this way of living and are new to it. You know, I wonder if it doesn't have to almost be technique -y. Mm. <laughs> Uh, at, at the beginning and that you have enough sense of commitment seeking that I will submit to this technique until it begins to teach me and then when the the teaching begins to soak in you'll usually become less rigid about the technique because you'll know it was just a finger pointing to the moon but once you touched upon the moon you get less preoccupied with the finger or thinking there's only one finger, which is, I think, the mistake most people make. The way I came to my God experience is the way you should. Uh, that's just not true. As John of the Cross says, there are as many ways to God as there are human beings. And a Spaniard Catholic would say that in the 16th century. is extraordinary sense of freedom and God's freedom and our freedom. So uh, learn some practice, have the commitment, dedication, and devotion to commit yourself to it, even though it will seem humiliating at first. Mm. Mm. It'll, it's a, actually the scandal of the particular. Oh, just doing this 
isn't going to matter. Your mind will find all kind of reasons to disagree with it. I see this in students and classes. Well, that isn't always true. It's the postmodern game. That isn't always true. And they don't realize they're just trying to absent themselves from what is true about it. Mm. It's going to ask too much of them. So they say, it isn't always true. I have grown so used to this response. It's almost always in the first five minutes of any question or answer. Mm. And I will even say, I'm not even asking you to think it's always true or forever true. But would you try it long enough to see it's a little bit true? <laughs> and that, that, that takes humility, I guess. Does that respond? Yeah. It brings to mind a memory of me when I first started to practice. Mm -hmm. uh, practice. Mm -hmm. I had just read uh, Zen Christianity by William Johnston. Oh, wow. And it was That's kind of my, my segue into mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. contemplative practice. And I remember I was 21 years old. Wow, I, you started early, Paul. Well, I stumbled early and then kind of <laughs> found my form. But I was so rigid about it. You know, I'd light a candle, mm -hmm. you know, sit uh, mm -hmm. cross-legged and stare at the candle <laughs> as thinking that this is the only way it could be done. Yep, yep, yep. And, um, but like you said, like the, that form or that format loosened as time went on. I didn't have to do it that way. But at first it was the only way I had to be alone and had to have the candle. You know, the number of times I was looking for a candle because you can't do a sit without a candle um, was just kind of how I, I fell into it, but really was able to expand from there with practice. The people who don't go into the expanding stage are the ones who become very rigid and then demand that same repetition from another person. And a lot of religious teachers are still at that level teaching one practice. Yeah. yeah, I also had that experience of um, clinging to the perfectionism of the form, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, I think I, I also just want to honor my enthusiasm. Yeah. I was just so excited That's right. That's to, right. to find Lovely. a new way of connecting to presence, connecting to, to God, um, that I was, I was thrilled to, to be doing it. But you know, I remember early in the living school uh, having the experience of feeling like I had to do it perfectly twice a day, you know, and uh, I'm looking at all these retired folk who had all the time in the world to do practice. And here I was as a young mom trying to juggle, you know, working and two kids at home and partnership and reality. And there were all these interruptions. And I think I have a little bit of a one in me, Richard, because oh, I would... <laughs> ones and fours oh, yeah. have a lot in common. Oh, man. Yeah, disruptions were... I was, like Disruptions to my practice were like the worst, you know? And yeah. I would find myself like, okay, I'm in this flow and I'm, I'm like doing my practice. <laughs> and then I'd hear my <laughs> one of my kids wake up and I was yeah. like, no. <laughs> How dare you wake up? <laughs> so... Uh, I think over time, I began to realize that the disruption is the practice, just as much as the practice Another is. chance to choose God deliberately. Yeah. And not your own success. Right. See, what we tend to say, take satisfaction in is our own success and call it taking satisfaction in God. Mm. Right. You see the, how we're getting fooled there? And so God has to grant us non-success so we can re-choose God and not ourselves. Right. 
it's brilliant. It works. Yeah, and I, I also think in in our kind of capitalistic culture, mm, mm. you know, it's not like you can win at contemplative prayer. <laughs> you you know, you're not really achieving, and it, so mm. it's it is short circuiting so much of how we it think. Is. Where you're like, is this actually doing something? And you feel like you're kind of just dying. It's just a daily yeah. death. Mm. It's an exercise every time in assured failure. So if you're living the, the worldview of Washington, D.C., that it's all about winning, you'll never try contemplation. You won't go near it. It undoes your whole schema at the most radical level possible. Makes you comfortable with losing, with not winning, and finding there's an okayness at the bottom of that that's even better now, I admit that we need some successes. We do. Like I'm looking at this, forgive me, and I'm having vain thoughts when I look at this new book and say, oh, look at my name. <laughs> <laughs> so we need a few of those. But uh, just don't take them too seriously or entertain them too long. Yeah. I'm thinking about those, Richard, who are hearing this and they're thinking about beginning a practice. And one of the things I think you named so well in this chapter is that you can be met by resistance that comes up mm. internally or like, um, I don't know if you've heard of this book called The War of Art. No. But beyond the clever title, I think one of the best things about it for me was talking about whenever you're kind of intent on a creative pursuit, he, he says the, the resistance shows up in some form, whether it's wow. I'm going to go clean this drunk, the, my junk drawer or mm. like I'm going to go check my email. Just these things that aren't necessarily bad, mm-hmm. but they're distractions or things that disempower you from what you actually showed up to do. So if someone's just thinking about starting a practice and what kind of wisdom would you offer as far as uh, acknowledging that there is the resistance that will show up or... We'll say, as you said earlier, like this is this is a stupid idea. I don't need to do yeah. this. What kind of advice would you offer for someone just brand new at this? You know, maybe uh, correct me if I'm wrong, or delete this if it isn't applicable. But what comes to mind is Cynthia's beautiful teaching on third force. That whenever there's a new arising, as certain as the dawn, and as Newton said, every force will be met by an equal and opposite reaction, a reaction. Uh, If that's true, and I have a feeling it largely is, then you you see the movement against the resistance, as you're rightly calling it, as part of the deal. It's the, now because we didn't know that, let me make a jump to an application, but I think that's why we murdered the Bible. Because you read the Bible and recognize every forward-moving message in the Bible, the resistance texts are in the Bible. They're included in the Bible. And, and people who are at the level of resistance prefer those texts. Kill all the Canaanites, mm-hmm. women and children included. Yes, sir, <laughs> the Word of God says that. The intuitive sense of a person in the mind of Christ knows that God didn't say that, you see. But for some reason, included in the Bible and in the human psyche and apparently in the evolutionary unflowing of creation, 
there is this necessary death principle. Now, I think I say in the book how I believe Christ is the life principle. Jesus is the insertion in the middle of history when we're perhaps ready for it. We clearly weren't uh, of the death principle. That the only way this life momentum will keep moving forward is if you can integrate the pushback, Hmm. integrate the negative, forgive the sin, if we use the term that we're familiar with. Once you know that pushback creates the momentum that leads to holy reconciling uh, and allows something new to happen, uh, then you're not so upset. You know when I get upset is when I watch my nature shows and I see these wild dogs killing a little fawn. Mm. And I just, I really, I just have to turn away. I can't look. Why does God let these wild dogs kill this little fawn who's only existed for one hour? I mean, everything in me just, no, no, no. And if I don't have a bigger frame, that somehow in the great scheme of things, this life-death mystery is leading to another level of life. I would go crazy in this world because mm-hmm. that's all it is every day. I mean, watch the evening news, local or national. It's all about the pushback. It really is. Mm-hmm. It's all about the pushback. So little about the push or the movement forward. And yet, with all of this pushback, we can't deny that the movement forward is happening. <sighs> But on on any particular day, I think most of us are overwhelmed by what's not happening. Mm. Mm. So all I'm doing is repeating what you already said. This does not satisfy the rational mind Mm. because your rational mind will still name it bad. Good, bad. There's the two big alternatives. And that the bad could possibly include some level of good is hard for us to admit. And that our good, so-called, usually has a few levels of bad in it, Mm. is equally hard for us to accept. This is that human tragedy that I think Paul recognized. And if you need a a visual symbol, we've all seen the Taoist symbol. The white circle with the spot of black, the black circle with the spot of white. That's pretty good Mm. (laughs) because that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. That's the way it is. The complexity of human evil and human goodness. Now, once you agree, okay, if Jesus could live in this world, that's what we're accepting from the cross. If you can say it's okay to trust this, all right, I'll trust it. Even though it doesn't make a bit of sense. Hmm. Now, there's going to be a day coming in each of our lives where that's going to be the only thing that's going to get you through the day. Hmm. Saying, okay, I don't like it. I don't trust it. I want to get out of it. It's wrong. It's stupid. It's unjust. But Jesus, if you hung there 
And again, think of the cross not as an atonement, but God's radical solidarity with the human situation. God's radical solidarity with the human situation. In the original rising, in the pushback, and in the transformation. Mm. We've got a good religion, but it's just... It's so hard to teach it at the good level. Mm. <laughs> it really is. It's really prof a profound overview of what we're doing in practice. Mm. This trusting the desire. So desire moves in us toward, say, I really, I want to develop this way of seeing. And then to not resist the resistance that comes back. resist the resistance. Which is the, no. oh, but I don't like this. I don't enjoy mm. this. This mm. doesn't, you know, my mind doesn't like it. My body is resisting. And to hold the tension of opposites there, mm. to let that collision of you opposites it. It. happen no. within you <clears throat> in a trust of a bigger cosmic hope of, I believe this is developing something within me that is part of the Christ mystery. I believe that this is part of the path. Uh, yeah, that's just, it's striking me as, as a, you just gave a deep theological overview to what's happening yeah. in our very bodies when we do practice. And you know, the proof of that in the pudding, if you are honest about yourself, you'll see that afterwards you're more compassionate, not less. Hmm. Your soul has expanded, not tightened up mm. or constricted. So there's the resurrection. Now, it's a hard-won resurrection because you were in hell for a few hours or days or minutes. But you're, you're less righteous the next day. You're less, less uh, certain. It's a holy uncertainty, mm. uh, willing to hold the ambiguity. Well, she wasn't the total evil bitch I made her into. That was more <laughs> me talking than than really her. Yeah. yeah. And when you see those arisings in yourself, you know that God's victory has been achieved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is reminding me. I know I keep making you read things, Richard, oh, but I like, you know you, what I mean? Like, you why even know not? what page they're on. <laughs> um, I would, where is I'm looking for the love after love? Oh, is that right here in the epilogue? Yeah. There yeah, it is. Derek um, Walcott. Would you he be? He was a young man when I first met him. Yeah. Would you t share where where this poem came yeah. from and then just read it for us? You know, when I was pastor of the Lake Community in Cincinnati, uh, which grew very quickly in the first years. Uh, wow! Did I get invited to the island of Saint Lucia? I must have. How else would I have gone down there? I didn't set up a trip. But, um, oh, well, it was the charismatic movement. And I was known as a charismatic preacher, and it was very strong on that island. And uh, I came down to give a workshop. And this poet, who was introduced to me, Derek Walcott, the name meant nothing at that time, but then it was so ironic, on the very day uh, that he died, March 17th, I was beginning to write this book, 2017, I first read this poem of his, and I, I didn't remember it. It's called Love After Love. 
the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome your own self seeing your own self in your own mirror and you will say to yourself in effect sit here eat you will love again the stranger who was yourself give wine give bread give back your heart to itself to the stranger who has loved you all your life whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart take down the love letters from the bookshelf the photographs the desperate notes peel your own image from the mirror it's just an image sit and feast on your life I don't know if he wrote that close to his own death or not, but it sounds like an end-of-life poem mm -hmm. uh, where there's been this absolute acceptance of the self. And as I say in my commentary, I probably should not have added this. I hope this book has helped you to experience and to know that the Christ, you, and the stranger that he speaks of in this poem are all looking out with the same set of eyes but you only know that at the end of your life mm. yeah, that god's mm. eyes are not other than yours and your eyes when they're doing it right are not other than god's mm. i'm so grateful that you added that line actually it really oh for me brought the whole oh. book home oh good mm. well that makes me happy yeah. yeah, he had just died. Uh, uh, and I think he just came to my talks because I was the only thing happening in town that day. Uh, you know, but I remember meeting him. It felt like a very pastoral way to end with these practices, mm -hmm. which are just so much of, just of, of being and receiving and participating in the Trinity, I think, particularly of the mirror, divine mirror. And then to end with that poem, it felt like that was your mic drop. <laughs> just the, wow. the, the lasting yeah. wow. resonance just you are making me so happy <laughs> that those things hit you in that way so Richard it's been such a treat for us to be able to walk through so beautiful. the universal Christ with you in, in this way and you've been so gracious to no I'm not being gracious with our questions I'm and our ponderings totally. oh good oh, that's good to hear <laughs> thank you thank you and knowing that sometimes it's a roundabout way of, of yeah. talking about and the big me things to of say life. things that you already know what I'm going to say, but <laughs> we need to say them. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And we know there's been a lot of folks who have taken this journey with all of us through this book in this way. What do you What do you hope for those who have been with us, whether it's they're doing Ooh. the dishes and listening to it or they're on a run or in their car? What do you hope they take away and walk away with um, as they try to in integrate some of this into their life? You know, I don't know why it comes to mind, but that line from Walcott's poem, take the image down from the mirror and feast on your life. Uh, that God has come to you disguised as your life, as Paula D'Arcy says. That there's no big ideal, moral achievement that you must achieve. And the irony is that radical, 
self-acceptance, that accepting that you are accepted. Uh, will paradoxically probably allow you to do some very generative, sacrificial, if I can use the word, caring things for our world. But you'll know now that it's coming through you as a flow, not as a self-initiated generosity. So that's incarnation come to its full conclusion. When I can know that I am the image of God and I put together humanity and divinity in my feeble life, just like Jesus did. What else would the final state of incarnation be? Uh, yeah. So if, if this book, even a chapter of it, has that the beginnings of that effect for anybody, I will be extremely grateful. Because I think as I look at our culture, and as I've taught in especially Western Europe, but the rest of the world too, I see a humanity that is burdened with lack of self-esteem. Just it takes a thousand faces, but human beings who think they're nothing and are trying to overcompensate in the most superficial of ways, driving the fastest motor car. <laughs> oh, it's okay to drive a fast motor car, but is this just putting off the peeling off of your image from the mirror and knowing your inherent goodness without driving the fastest motor car. The, the problem is solved at the beginning. You don't have to play all these achievement games. You don't have to live up to all these performance principles. I think I especially see it in nervous teenagers. They're science trying so hard to be loved, to fit in, to be famous, to be... And I know they have to do it. You know, I didn't even know how to swim. When I, <laughs> when I tried to get the swimming merit badge, I could still picture the moment in the swimming pool where I just, I couldn't admit to all, all the other little 14-year-old boys that I didn't know how to swim. Okay, you gotta swim down to the end and back. Okay. <laughs> just, I must have looked like a complete fool. I got about four feet, you know, when I'm falling in the water. But I just was sure my determination would teach me how to swim. <laughs> oh, what a horrible night that was. I did the same thing with baseball. I just I thought I could fake it. So maybe I had an excess of self-confidence, you know. But it was to win the self-esteem of my peers and anything to fit into that group at 14 and to make them not call you an idiot or whatever they might call you. And you who are parents, I'm sure you're going to have immense sympathy for your kids when they go off to high school or middle school. It must be torture. Well, Richard, it's it's a sign of how uh, what an embodied wisdom elder you are that you're <laughs> describing how you were at fourteen, which is how I would describe most of adults in America. Oh, <laughs> still at fifty four, still very much yeah. in that know, trap of of trying to find that deep sense of selfhood 
of belonging, of cosmic okayness. And I, I, I feel that this book yeah. is pointing us in that direction. No, I hope so. Cosmic okayness. And you've heard me say it, I guess I say it in the book, it is very hard to heal individuals when the whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket. Mm. And that's what we're dealing with. The whole thing is incoherent, and yet I'm supposed to tell you that you're wonderful and then send you down to a typical bar. There's nothing wrong with going to a bar, but if it's a totally negative environment, there is something destructive about going to a bar mm. or anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of families are worse than bars. Uh, okay. Thanks, Richard. We're just so grateful well, for we're this. we're done? Do you have... Oh. Yeah, no, just want to offer our deep gratitude for mm, going on this journey with us um, over so many weeks and so many hours and for modeling the incarnational worldview that you talk about, for, for modeling the embodiment of Christ and for um, giving us a chance to uh, talk about it, to see it, to name it, and hopefully now to go off into our lives and, and live, live it and live into it. If I could do that at all, it because I was in the presence of three very loving people and I felt safe here, I felt accepted here, there were no minefields or, or no inherent mistrust. And whenever I've had a crowd in front of me like that, which I've been lucky enough to often have, it brings the gospel out of me. I do believe the preaching of the gospel is a symbiotic affair. If you have a hostile, heresy-seeking crowd in front of you, you'll say outrageous things, mm -hmm. either on the right or the left. But you all represent such sweetness. I don't know what else to say. So thank you for being the symbiosis that I believe the body of Christ is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to learn about these ideas in more depth, check out the Universal Christ Resource Collection at universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.